All right, we're in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to make it through this little book. Trust me. Let me pray. Father, as we approach a difficult topic, we just ask for your blessing and give us insight into great truths. There is a danger that the evil one will want to possess us or deflect us or pull us down. So we ask for your protection and understanding of our own faith and where we are in Christ's name. Amen. So when we, we started looking at the book of 1 John, we said that one of the main themes of the book is what, a, what is a true Christian? And the obvious uh, answer for a lot of people is, well, I don't know. John doesn't say we can't know. He doesn't say that. While we can't read hearts, uh, to a certain extent, we can see what's in a heart by the words and actions that we do see, do see. But as Barbara was sharing this morning and challenging us, that's not always clear either, is it? Because we can't see inside someone's heart. A true Christian, though, we can say, is not the same as a non-Christian. A true Christian is not a person, is not just a person who believes certain doctrines. That doesn't make you a true Christian if you say, well, I think that's true. A true Christian is a person that truly feels the weight of his or her own sin and has embraced Jesus Christ and his sacrifice is the only hope of eternal life. That's what a true Christian is. They internally truly feel the weight of their sin and their heart is reached out to embrace Christ who's the solution to their sin problem. Then out of gratitude and love, the true Christian strongly desires to honor Christ in every way that he or she can. That's the difference. That's the thing that makes a Christian a true Christian. So we saw earlier in chapter 2 um, this uh, commitment to obey Christ. That was the first test that John gave. Chapter 2 verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So you can't know God for who he really is and ignore him or disobey him. We also saw another clear sign of the true Christian is in verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 9. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So the true Christian is not perfect in love, but he or she does absolutely understand the need to love one another, to love as Christ loves. They know that holding on to hatred in the heart is a grave sin and one to be repented of and dealt with and fought against. That's what a true Christian knows. So a true Christian is going to agree with the test of obedience and the test of love as measures of his or her faith. We look at that and we say, that's the measure of my faith. Where am I? And indeed, the true Christian deeply believes that those are the marks of a Christian. He understands that. Now, there might be some connection with these two tests, the test of obedience and the test of love. And the event that happened that caused John to write this letter, and we know what that event was, a number of people from the churches of Asia that he oversaw had left Christianity and gone to join a cult. And we've talked a lot about that cult, Gnosticism. 
That cult denied all the central truths of the faith or twisted them out of all recognition. So it was not in any way Christian. So perhaps there was open sin in that group as well. Perhaps there was failure in love in that group as well. But maybe um, it could be that John just began with obedience and love because those are the two great signs of, of true faith in Jesus and they are the marks of the spirit working in us. It's the spirit who has written God's moral law in our hearts. And John re John's readers would have known all about that. But John goes further than that. Something else marks the true Christian in verse 19. It says, they went out from us, and this is the verse we're looking at today. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. So another test of being a true Christian is endurance. It's, it's staying with him, remaining in Christ, remaining in Christian fellowship. And this language, you know, we talked about John. His language is so simple. He uses the simplest words, elementary school words, really. And they, but there's these lofty ideas within those words. So he just says, of us and remained with us. That's the simplest way to say it. Simple words, but very profound. Leaving us shows that they were not of us. That's the easiest way to say it. So another mark of authentic Christianity is remaining with Christ and God's people. Now before we go any further, let me just stop and say that what this doesn't mean, okay? What does this verse not mean? Because it's misused, kind of horribly misused sometimes in some Christian churches, especially amongst certain kinds of fundamentalists and pastors who are super controlling, they love this verse, but they misuse it a lot. Basically, there's a temptation, a temptation that too many saints give into to say that if you leave, if you leave our form of Orthodox Christianity and go be a part of another form of Orthodox Christianity or someone that has a different doctrine than we do in very unimportant sort of secondary matters, well, obviously, then you're not a real believer because you don't accept everything our way. You, you went somewhere else instead of us. We've had people come here and the, the pastor at the church they left said that about them. They're not real believers, obviously. I know, hard to believe, huh? <laughs> so someone asked the pastor, well, why did they leave us and go to Acton Faith Bible Church? Well, Joe, you know what the Bible says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Poor lost souls. But that's not what John means. Look, I've been here more than 30 years pastoring this church. And we've had people come here and get settled in, and then they leave. They go somewhere else. Now, if they went and became a Jehovah's Witness, that would be a very serious thing. But if they went and joined another evangelical, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church, that's perfectly fine, right? It's not, they went out from us because they were not of us. No, they liked their kids' program, or they wanted to sing rock and roll songs, or whatever the thing was, you know? They, everybody's got their thing. They have a glorious building or they have 30-minute sermons there. They're really good, but they're only 30 minutes long. Or the church is 12 minutes closer to my house. Whatever the thing is, they, they went to another church, and, and you know what? That's perfectly fine. We don't go, oh my, oh my, the, the Millers, they went to that Bible Presbyterian church up the road where they baptized babies and, and don't believe in the millennial kingdom. But they, they do believe in salvation by grace through faith, right? And through the blood of Jesus, right? Yeah. Yeah, but you know what the Bible says. They went out from us because they were not of us. 
they're not really part of the faith. No, John, John writes of people leaving Christ, not just leaving a local church to go to another local church. If, if they've not left the faith that all true Christians share, then they most certainly are still of us, right? You got that? Good. Because you may end up in a place sometime where it's taught differently. So when John says of us, he doesn't mean our denomination or our particular theological tribe. He means the body of Christ, any true Christian, any Orthodox Christian that believes in the gospel. That's what he's talking about there. So don't ever, well, don't abuse it yourself, this verse about people going to legitimate churches other than your own, and don't sit under people that are going to teach that kind of thing because that's really cruel and, and wrong. We all think our theology on lesser matters is correct. We all think that, but that doesn't exclude other believers from heaven. They're going to be up there enjoying it just as much as we will. So we regard them as brothers and sisters. You know, one of the great joys of the putting on the big Easter drama every year, which we haven't been able to do and maybe we'll never be able to do again, I don't know, but the joy of it was getting together with other local pastors in town and putting that thing on, all from our different denominations and different groups, but we all shared the same basic faith and you know they had different traditions than we have and some different doctrines than we have and but we're all laboring together in this magnificent outreach and and that kind of cooperation is kind of a horror to some people but I loved it and I miss it I really do miss it but I should point out that not every church in our community was welcome to participate in putting on the Easter drama because early on we developed a, a simple but clear doctrinal statement for churches to be involved in that program. And if you couldn't sign it, you couldn't participate. I actually wrote that doctrinal statement and then Pastor Gene, who comes from a very different church than ours, but a gospel preaching church, he, he made some suggestions. He said, you know, you need to make this clearer and, and he was totally right about that. So like I made the corrections that he suggested. And, um, but the Mormon church in town couldn't sign it. The Catholic church in town couldn't sign it. But all who hold to the central tenets of the Christian faith, they would, we would hap happily have fellowship with them and work together on something like that. So just because someone prefers another church to yours does not mean they are not of us. Because who are us? Right? We, are, we belong to Christ. And if they belong to Christ, we're brothers and sisters, right? So of course they are of us. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be concerned if they choose a church that's very weak on the word of God. You should have a loving concern for any brother and sister that's going somewhere which doesn't focus on the scriptures. So they may be of us, but they may lack discernment in a certain case. You might want to give them a, a kind and gentle warning about something if you know that, you know. We can warn other people about things like that, but don't say they're not of us. There's churches, there are churches that are not of us. And you should be very concerned about Christians in our church who leave to go to a church that denies the faith, that denies the authority or sufficiency of scripture, that says that the cross of Jesus doesn't mean anything, it doesn't have any effect, and, and abandons all Christian morality. Now that would be a real concern. And that person might not be of us, or they could be very deceived part of us, and we need to warn them. So in that case, maybe the one leaving is a real Christian who doesn't understand, and when you explain it to them, they come running back, but often if they go to a church that far off the deep end, they know what they're doing and they don't care. And in that case, they're not of us and they never were. There's something else going on there. So remember last week we talked about Antichrist being around today, like John mentioned that, and, and, and there's a lot of them running around today. Religiosity is not a sign of being God's child. It doesn't mean you know the real Jesus just because you're very religious. That's not it. And saying you know Jesus and knowing Jesus 
are not necessarily the same thing. You can say it and it not be true. In fact, Paul warns in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 about another Jesus, which some people had gone off to follow. Not another church worshiping the same Jesus, but another Jesus altogether. There are other Jesuses out there that are not of the biblical Christ. Salvation is found in the real Jesus that we find in the Bible. And if you go to a church with a Jesus who doesn't save, they may even say you don't need salvation. Jesus just loves you anyway. You don't need it. You don't have a sin problem. They might say that to you. Then you've made a shipwreck of your faith if you're going to go there and participate in that world. Okay. Got that? Good. We're not done. We're just getting started. Now I want to totally switch gears and discuss this social phenomenon that's going on all through our culture. And uh, it started in Europe. It's here now. It's called deconversion. Deconversion is undo undoing your conversion to Christ. You're leaving the faith. Sometimes it's called deconstructing the faith. The word, what does the word deconstruct mean? You're tearing it down, right? You're breaking it down. That's right. So in this case, it's your faith that's being torn down. But I need to be really careful here because, so I'm using two different words. Deconversion, you're leaving the faith that you had joined or been a part of. And deconstructing is tearing down your faith. Now, some people use the word, I'm just trying to help you here because these are words are bouncing around in the culture a lot. You'll hear them. Some people use the word deconstruct to mean something more like reevaluating why you believe. That's a different thing than just deconverting. A lot of people deconstruct to deconvert, you know, to, to leave the faith. But not everybody does that. In fact, here's one person's definition of this. Deconstruction is a careful and deliberate examination of one's beliefs from the inside. It's about coming to terms with what you believe outside of your inherited beliefs. It's about growing into your faith, not out of it. It's kind of clever, huh? Now actually, if, you, if I, you just take those words at face value, that could be a very good thing. Especially for a person in sort of a spiritual crisis, kind of not knowing where they are. They aren't sure what they believe. Some perhaps... Some people perhaps that were raised in a Christian home and when they go out and they see the wider world and they've been pretty sheltered, they're, they, they're just not sure what's true anymore. They kind of start doubting. Or they went to church where the whole church was about having an experience and was hardly ever about the Word of God and they didn't study the Bible at all and they don't, just don't know anything. And so they might need to deconstruct to reconstruct. Let me, I'll talk about that in a minute. But it also happens to people that are raised in a particular kind of Christianity that is extremely legalistic, uh, heavily focused on external conformity. Some of you have been from churches like that. There are certainly, it, look, there are toxic forms of Christianity. There are toxic forms of fundamentalism and evangelical Christianity. Um, soul-crushing ministries that just oppress you with a lot of rules that have nothing to do with the Bible and measure you entirely by external things. And, uh, and, then, and then on the other side of that, there's charlatans and manipulators who just take advantage of people for their own glory and will say anything. And so when people come out of a church like that or in a, uh, a church environment like that, either one of those extremes, if you've been caught up in that kind of world, it hurts. And then you start wondering, well, what is real? You know, what's the, who is the real Jesus? And because your church missed it and they taught you about a Jesus that wasn't real. 
So it's understandable, at least to me, that some people would say, well, look, the church did me wrong. They messed me up. So maybe the whole thing's not true. Some people go through that. Questioning, examining, and seeking God through a healthy deconstruction can actually be a good thing. It can also be a really bad thing. What makes it good or bad depends on what your purpose in deconstructing is. Deconstructing can be good if you're reconstructing on Jesus Christ. You're taking away the baggage and the weird stuff you were taught and the harsh environment you might have been in and you're, you're reconstructing your faith based on Jesus. Deconstruction would be bad if you're cutting yourself loose from Christ and you're going to reconstruct your life apart from him or with another Jesus that isn't anything like the real Jesus. One Christian musician who deconstructed and deconverted in his faith, he said he still accepts the universal Christ. Well, that's a new age Christ. That's the Christ that's kind of just out there and he's there for everybody and he doesn't make any demands at all and there's no holiness. He didn't give his life for your sins or anything like that. So he worships that Christ now. Now that's a kind of, de of deconstructing and if he reconstructed with the universal Christ idea, then he's shipwrecked his faith. He's, he's lost everything. It's a disaster, a spiritual disaster. So that's not a good thing, right? Now, in some ways, I think I, think I can honestly say I kind of went through a process like that myself for, for a good end. I was raised in a church that didn't believe in the central tenets of Christianity. It had in hundreds of years before, but it didn't anymore. And I'm not even sure why it existed. But I would sort of went through this process of having to deconstruct and reconstruct my faith, too. Uh, because I had very little interest in that faith. And when I came here to California to go to school, I didn't go to church. I wasn't interested in church. It was useless. It was meaningless to me. It was shallow, unpersuasive. Uh, so I didn't give... No, I liked Jesus. I really did. I was very strongly drawn to him. He wasn't shallow. He wasn't uninteresting as the church that I attended, that I grew up in was. But to me, to me, Jesus was great. In fact, he was sort of the... Everything that was wonderful about Western civilization kind of traces back to him. All the good things sort of trace back to him. I could tell that. I knew that. Well, so I came out here to go to school and some guy invited me to church. He said, are, are you a born-again Christian? And I said, what's that? And he invited me to church and I went and they were teaching the Bible for heaven's sakes. Whoa, my goodness. You can understand this book. I could never understand it before. So I went and wham, I was hooked. I kept going. So the beauty and the glory of Christ was there all the time in this book we never studied in the church I grew up in. It was all there in the scriptures. He was there. He was right there. And so were the answers to all the big questions of life. They were all right there. So I was born anew by the Spirit of God. But what if you're raised in a church that does teach the Bible and does believe in the central tenets of the faith, but you're doubting? or you're uncertain, that's pretty common, especially in a culture like ours. So you might feel like you accepted Christianity because you were raised in it and it really doesn't belong to you. It's not yours. So my advice is deal with your doubts. Confront them head on. Take them on. Jesus does not have it in for people that have honest doubts and questions. He, he cares about you. He doesn't 
He's not mad at you for that. He does present himself as the solution to your doubts and questions, and he is that. But if you feel that way, just make sure you're not being rebellious. That's also very common. So make sure it isn't just rebellion or a desire to sin that's going to lead you away from your faith. That, that happens all the time. But that's a horrible reason to deconstruct. I just want to go out there and do whatever I want to do. Well, that's, what is that? that? That lacks character. I'm sure you're a person of character. So you wouldn't want to do that. So you have to be honest with yourself about why you're faltering and what exactly it is that you're after. Now let's say you do find yourself in a terrible spiritual crisis, just serious doubt, and you want to deconstruct. You want to break your faith down and see what was real there. Let's say that's what you want to do. That's the path to faith for some people, for some people. Some of the greatest saints in the church emerged through that kind of struggle, just thinking it all through in a fresh way. Martin Luther would be one of those people. John Wesley was one of those people. Some very big names. They did deconstruct their faith and reconstructed it on Christ. They did it on their knees. They asked God for help. Like the man who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? And Jesus honored that man. But if you do pursue a path of deconstructing for whatever it is going on in your heart or your mind, whatever feelings are driving you internally, don't just wander out there with no purpose. That's not a good way to deconstruct anything. So you want a full reevaluation of your relationship to Christ, and that should include certain things that you should do. And I'm going to list three things for you, okay? Write these down because if you deconstruct later, like two years from now, you can put it in the back of your Bible and you can have it there. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to de- I'm going to deconstruct my faith. What should guide me? Well, three things I think will, will be helpful. First, if you're going to deconstruct, it should be firmly committed to that which is true. In other words, that should be your foundational commitment. I'm going to be committed to what's true. And by true, I mean the actual truth. I know we live in a culture where truth is very flimsy and it's based on how you feel. We're not talking about feelings got to take the feelings thing out of it. Our culture is so focused on self that truth has changed its meaning to be based on feelings. You know, I feel like that big flood in Pakistan that happened the other day and killed hundreds of people was just, was just wrong. I, I don't feel right about that. How could God let that happen? Okay, what's, what's the truth about it? Start asking those questions to yourself. What's the truth about it? I, I feel bad about it. I feel bad that that happened. Was it without meaning? If it had meaning, then what is that meaning? What's the truth behind what happened? What conditions in the world made that where that could happen? And why do I feel bad about it happening? A lot of deconversion stories, and I mean deconversion stories now, and I don't believe all of them. I really don't. I think sometimes people play games with those stories when they leave the faith, and especially celebrity types. But they'll say something like this. I was a Christian for 20 years, a committed Christian, absolutely. And then I asked, why is there so much suffering in the world? And I went to my pastor, and he couldn't explain it to me, and I lost my faith. Now, for me, it's really hard to believe somebody could be a Christian for 20 years and never have wrestled with the problem of suffering in the world. I mean, doesn't that confront us all the time? I guess you could be just somebody that's just not interested in anything. But I think most people wrestle with that kind of a question. Suddenly it bothers them after 20 years of being in, in, in Christ, you know, that there's disasters and terrible things that happen. 
So I don't know. I'm a little suspicious of that kind of deconversion. But deconstruction or deconversion stories are full of feelings of personal preference. That's what I'm talking about, though. There's some things in the Bible I don't like. I just don't like them. They make me feel bad. I, I, I don't like that God judges people. Or that animals are sacrificed. I love animals. I hate it when animals are sacrificed in the Bible. The Bible doesn't support my LGBTQIA plus friends. doesn't support them. It says there's only one way to God. I don't think that's fair. I just don't feel like that's fair. Okay, so that's how you feel. So the question to ask yourself is what is the truth? And where do you find the truth? That's got to be the dominant reality there. Is truth determined by how you feel? Are feelings a reliable guide for your life? They're not for mine. I don't think you want a pastor that just does whatever his feelings tell him to do. Pursue the truth. Be skeptical. If you're going to be skeptical of Christianity and deconstruct it, deconstruct everything else too. Deconstruct all the things that are around us. Be as skeptical of everything else as you are of Christianity. Be especially skeptical of what the Germans call the zeitgeist, the, the spirit of the age, the, all the modernity, whatever, what everybody's saying and what the, the way the culture's going. My goodness, how cultural assumptions and cultural morals constantly change, right? So that's not a good place to land and say, that's truth. Whatever kind of everybody thinks right now and, and the, the professors are saying and the culture's saying and the television is saying and TikTok videos are saying, those are the things that are going to rule my, my... No, don't be that stupid. I'm sorry, naive or foolish. <laughs> don't be that naive to, to think your generation has everything all figured out again, and against all the wisdom of the past and all the previous generations. And uh, Come on, you know that's not true. You should deeply question the culture around you. In fact, you should mostly question that. You should be very skeptical. Ask all those hard questions about that. Deconstruct culture and its influence on you. Because we live in a culture that's clearly lost its way. Even common sense just goes right out the window. We have a culture that's literally winging it. Winging it. Making it up as they go and jumping on anybody that says, wait a minute now, I'm not sure that's wise. <laughs> you don't want to go down that path. So whatever you do, number one, pursue the truth. Pursue the truth. Now, number two is related to that. Look at the options. Look at the options. Ask hard questions to every worldview. You know what a worldview is? It's your take on the nature of the universe, what reality is, what, what the real truth of everything is, how it all works. So in other words, if the cosmo your worldview could be totally atheistic, this, uh, the cosmos is all there is, or was, or ever will be, as Carl Sagan said many years ago on television. That's all there is. There's no meaning behind it. There's nothing. It's just processes working out. Every thought in your head is just atoms banging together and certain influences on your mind. There's no purpose or meaning to any of it, even though they love to write books to convince you that there's no purpose or meaning to any of it, which gives them a purpose and a meaning. But anyway. Um, Everybody has a worldview. Any thinking person has some kind of a worldview. So what worldview are you going to adopt? What's the truth? What's the great truth out there? And you can ask some really simple questions about that. What explains the universe I live in, the world I live in, the best? Why are human beings so amazing? Why are we so far above the animals? Why are, can we do and think and create and 
wrestle with morality and justice and all of these things that an ant does not think about, nor a dog, nor a chimp. All these wonderful things were so far above them. Why? And why are we so bad? Why do we believe in justice and morality and all these good things and break it so often? Why do we mess up so much? Why is humanity in this horrible condition? Why are human beings inclined to evil? Why are we bad? How do other worldviews explain those things? You want to measure them and say, which one makes the most sense? Evaluate every worldview on the basis of what is true, not feelings. If you find yourself challenging only Christianity, then your search is not really a search, but you're rationalizing abandoning God. But if you take the same skeptical attitude towards everything and break them all down and look at what's real there, you're going to do a lot better. But, but if you are only attacking Christianity and only deconstructing Christianity, you're not seeking the truth. You're just trying to run away from God. I'm just letting you know that. That's what you're doing. Number three, probably the most important. Certainly it's the most important. So if you're going to go through that process, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's the third thing. He is Christianity. He is Christianity. Not the pastor with an anger problem or, or power issues. You know, Jesus himself warned about wolves in sheep's clothing. And the Apostle Paul gave us standards in Scripture in two different places to measure church leaders. And if they don't match up to those standards, God told you that person's not worthy of being a leader. So don't be surprised or upset. It happens. So God provided protection from that if you know the Word of God. Jesus is true Christianity. In all his compassion, his incredible compassion, and his holiness, his burning holiness, Jesus is true Christianity. And he condemns harsh ministers and preachers that are motivated by money, and he hates that. So look to him. There's no greater person in all of history than Jesus of Nazareth. And there's no greater story told about any person in history than the one about him, that Jesus is actually God become man to bear the weight of the sins of the world. There's no greater story and there's no greater person. Isn't it just kind of a funny accident that the greatest story that human beings have ever thought about is this, belongs to the greatest person that ever lived? How did that happen? That's a good question to ask yourself. Is it an accident of history that this idea had, that had never come before, to men before that God would lay down, become one of us and lay down his life for us, to suffer for us, to save us, to redeem us? It's an unsurpassed idea and no human being has come up with a better idea than that God would do that. Before Jesus, nobody ever thought of that. And after Jesus, nobody's ever improved on that. And then there's him. There's a 19th century preacher named John Macduff. And, and just reflecting on God becoming man, he, he said this. He said, what a stoop. What a stoop for that infinite being who proclaimed himself the Alpha and the Omega for the Ancient of Days to assume the nature and take the form of a cradled infant sleeping on a virgin mother's breast. 
We have no plumb line to sound the depths of that humiliation. We have no arithmetic by which it can be submitted to any process of calculation. If we can entertain for a moment the shocking supposition of the loftiest created spirit in heaven abjuring his angelic nature and becoming an insect or a worm, we can in some feeble degree, he says, estimate the descent involved in that transformation. But for the illimitable, the everlasting Jehovah himself to become incarnate, the creator to take on the nature of the created, the infinite to be joined with the finite deity, to be linked with dust, this baffles our comprehension. We can only lie in adoring reverence and exclaim with the apostle, oh, the depth, oh, the depth. And then he says, wonder, wonder, O heavens, and be astonished, O earth. So listen, listen now. The one who abandons Jesus, the one who does leave us, they never saw the depth. They never got it. It wasn't there for them. To deconvert is to take the greatest story ever told and stick it in the realm of a fairy story. And to take the greatest man who ever lived and just say, well, he was some country rabbi who got in trouble with the law and ended up dead. Oftentimes, when people deconstruct in order to deconvert, to, to abandon Christianity, they say they feel free. And they say, I've never been happier. Not uncommon for them to say that. That's the one of whom John is speaking. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. How could they abandon Christ and feel joy? How could that possibly happen? It's because they never valued him for who he was. They never did. They never got it. They never understood. They didn't value him the way the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and remakes us to value him. That's a supernatural act of God that happens in us. So following him, even if it seemed sincere to them, if, even if they were sincere Christians, the people that never happened to, it was a burden to carry. That's why they feel happy when they leave. It was actually a burden to bear the commandments of Jesus on your life and to try to follow him without knowing him or being astonished by him or worshiping him truly. So they were religious, but they were not awakened people. They were not of us. They were fundamentally different from us. It's basically the same difference as a, a, between a truly born-again Christian and a dutiful Mormon, for example. Mormons follow the Jesus presented to them by their church. They believe the Gospels are a true account of his life and death and resurrection. They embrace the moral teachings of Jesus as, they're, as it's explained to them, as they're taught it. But it's a completely different God they worship, a completely different God, and an altogether different Jesus. The Mormons believe the person that they call Heavenly Father was once like us. And they're even open to the idea that he was a sinner like us. Their heavenly father has a father. Just as their Jesus has the same father that we do. We're all spirit children. Jesus and us, we're all spirit children of God. He was just the first. And if we're good enough, we can achieve what heavenly father is today. And 
be the God of our own planet and have our celestial wives and birth spiritual children and make our own world. That's what they believe. That's their religion. They sincerely believe it. Obviously, they're not born again because that's a different God. So then it appears that people can have that same kind of sincere religious conviction to biblical Christianity, but not know him. Serve it, maybe love it, find community there, all those good things, but not follow Christ, not love Christ, not adoring him. Present with us, believing like us in terms of the content of our faith, but not born again. They're not insincere so much as what the New Testament calls spiritually dead. They just never had that in their heart. They don't have a new heart. So they're just religious. Well, folks, we're not called to be religious. That is not what God calls us to be, but to love God above all things and to follow Jesus Christ with our whole hearts. And those who are not of us, they just don't get that. They don't get it because they don't have it. I'm going to ask you to turn to one other place and then we'll be done here. John chapter 6. At one point in John's gospel, Jesus is preaching in a synagogue in Capernaum. And Jesus' many followers start getting really uncomfortable with what he's saying during his back and forth with his Jewish opponents. And I'm just going to kind of run down a list because I don't want to take up a lot of time here. But if you look at verse 35 of chapter 6, Jesus is saying weird things like, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. Or verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is in my flesh. Verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Verse 58, he who eats this bread will live forever. It's just too much. It's too much. He's astounding claims. He's the bread of life. They can't handle it. To believe something like that would take a miracle. And that's exactly what happens when you believe it. A miracle happens. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. And who it was who would betray him. Verse 65. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted from the Father. Well, there's the answer from his own lips. Salvation is a divine work, a work of grace, a granting of a new heart, a new birth. One evidence that the Father has granted saving faith, John is saying, is that they remain. They stay. Verse 66, 
As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. A bunch of his disciples. They left. Why did they leave? Well, humanly speaking, they couldn't accept what Jesus said about himself. But Jesus says it's much deeper than that. It had not been granted them from the Father. They had no capacity for the truth. Human beings are born rebellious against God. We're children of our first parents. And without a miracle of God in our heart, we're not going to follow even the offer of salvation. Only God can break what Martin Luther called the bondage of the will and take that rebellious heart and give it life so that it sees how wonderful Jesus is and embraces him. So what is going on spiritually when a person professes faith in Christ? And let's just go as far as we can here. It, it not only professes faith in Christ, but is actually a practicing Christian. He knows the Bible well. He serves in the church for years. He's evangelized other people. He's read all the apologetic books to defend the faith, and he can make the arguments, and he's done that with people, and then he walks away. Then he walks away. What's going on? Well, I don't really know, because I, I'm not there, and I've never been there. And I will never be where a deconverted person is because my heart's been awakened. That's all I can say. It's a miracle. And that same thing's happened to you. For some unfathomable reason, God was gracious to me and opened my heart. So I will always believe. Well, how do you know that? Because it happened. It's real. Ultimately, we rest in what Jesus says here, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So hear me now. Doubts and struggles do not mean that God is not gracious to you. That doesn't mean that. Jacob wrestled with God and received the blessing. That is often the path to true faith, wrestling with God. There's nothing wrong with that. If you're ever tempted to deconstruct because you struggle with your faith, you're not going to find any kind of condemnation here for struggling. We'll be right there with you. I'm here to walk with you through that. All the elders are here to walk with you through that. To be there for you. We're not going to condemn you for having doubts and struggles. You're not going to get blasted here for that. We'll help you think through all the issues. I can't give you faith. I wish I could, but I can. But Jesus can. He can give you faith. The very end of Matthew 11, Jesus said, No one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And then he says this, Come to me, all who are weary heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if you deconstruct for him and with him, he will reconstruct you and your burden will be light. That's the promise that he makes. Let's pray. Lord, these are 
grave matters, but you are faithful to all of your promises. We can be weak, but you are always strong. We ask for grace to come to Jesus if we don't know you. And we rest in the grace that will keep us if we do know him. May we be filled with adoring reverence for you always. Preserve us by your spirit, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.